Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. I have a few words to say before we jump into our scripture and sermon. And uh, they are words of both framing for the rest of our time today and warning. So dun, dun, dun. Uh, words of warning. The title of today's sermon is called Roots and Branches. So first of all, I meant to mention this, but I forgot. Does anybody have one of those handouts? Thank you. Can I borrow that, Savannah? Thank you. So if you didn't get one of these, you're going to want one of these as we go through the sermon today. This is a handout that we introduced last week on the selfdom versus the kingdom and how we are invited to be born again, to be transplanted out of the soil of fear and control and into the soil of trust and love that is the kingdom of God. So you're going to want one of these. You can find them out on the silver table if you need one. Feel free to get up now and go and get one if you would like. And then, so the title of today's sermon is Roots and Branches, and you, uh, you can refer to that handout. But the subtitle of today's sermon is On Politics, Sexuality, and the Stuff of Life. So if you want to go, you can go now. Uh, the original subtitle was on identity, money, sexuality, politics, and the stuff of life. But I figured that was just a little too much. Um, so we pulled it back a little bit. Now we're just getting into politics and sexuality. Um, if you're new around here, we don't normally talk quite as on the nose as I will today, but that's what Lent's for, is to talk on the nose about things that are important. Um, and about midway through the conversation today, we will shift from PG to PG-13. So nothing uh, overly explicit, but uh, I want to defer to parents and give you uh, a chance should you decide if you've got a kid in the room that you would prefer to uh, usher out during that time. That's totally up to you. Um, I would say probably best for tweens and up or those who it will go right over their head. Uh, so I also want to say a couple of words of... Uh, caution slash confession. Uh, we're gonna explore the edges of what feel like a buzzsaw today around politics and sexuality, and they're, uh, these are giant topics. They're huge topics. We can't begin to scratch the surface of them today. And so the danger in talking about these things at all is that inevitably I'm gonna open up points of discussion that I cannot close. Um, and, and that's okay. We have a long life together. We'll have more of the chances to do this. Um, but on top of that, answering questions or resolving a conversation is not my goal today. My hope is to drive each and every one of us back into our own lives where we meet with Jesus around the well and we do business with God on all of these things. And so on that handout, we have these branches of the tree. These are practical areas of our life that have complex root systems going down below. And our question is, like, how do, we, how do we experience Jesus inviting us to be born again in these things? And so we'll hit sexuality and politics as case studies of that today. Uh, and, and then you can look at other branches of the tree on your own time. I also want to say this is not in response to any pastoral conversations that I've had. Because we talk about the stuff of life, 
with, you know, over coffee. I've talked about many of these topics with some of you in the last few weeks, but we never want to use the pulpit as a place to, like, feedback about what was said over coffee. So I just want to say this was planned eight months ago, and it's not in response to anything any of you may have told me recently. Um, and if I say anything that upsets or confuses you, then here's my twofold ask. Number one, would you talk to Jesus about that, first of all? Um, we, we tend to be reactive if we're, if we're living from that soil of fear and control. We tend to react, right? So sit with Jesus and ask him, am I upset about this because it's wrong or am I upset about this because it's challenging and disruptive? Um, and, and, you know, as a pastor, my hope is that we can grow up in Christ and that necessarily involves challenge and repentance. And so sometimes we need stuff stirred up a little bit gently in the edges of our life to say that this stuff matters, the branches on these trees matter. And then if you talk to Jesus about it and you still think I'm wrong, then come talk to me. Please don't pull away. I hope we can be a community that in the midst of disagreement, in the midst of debate, in the midst of feeling missed by one another, which is inevitable in community life, that we move toward one another instead of pulling away from each other. In fact, I think the conflict is actually part of the invitation to growth in Christ. And so don't run from it. Um, okay, we've already read two parts of the scripture reading from John 4. Let's stand together for the final part, and uh, we'll have Sonny lead us into the gospel reading. The good news from John 4. Believe me, woman, the time is coming. It has, in fact, come when what you're called will not matter and where you go to worship will not matter. It is who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. The woman said, I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming, and when he arrives, we'll get the whole story. I am he, said Jesus. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. Just then, his disciples came back. They were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking with that kind of a woman. No one said what they were all thinking, but their faces showed it. The woman took the hint and left. In her confusion, she left her water pot. Back in the village, she told the people, come see a man who knew all about the things I did, who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they went out to see for themselves. Many of the Samaritans from that village committed themselves to him because of the woman's witness. He knew about all the things I did. He knows me inside and out. They asked him to stay on, so Jesus stayed two days. A lot more people entrusted their lives to him when they heard what he had to say. They said to the woman, we're no longer taking this on your say-so. We've heard it for ourselves and know it for sure. He is the Savior of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, to Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. All right, so you may be seated, and we'll jump into this. Uh, I'm going to talk just a little longer than I usual do, usually do, uh, but we'll get through it as quick as we can. So we're here in Act 4 of our big story. We've been sitting with that throughout this entire ministry year, and uh, we will continue on with that through the Easter season, through Pentecost, and then into ordinary time where we'll land that plane by, by looking at the book of Revelation and how this big story ends, and so I look forward to all of that. Um, but for now, we're sitting in Lent, and we're sitting with the life of Jesus, his words and his ways. 
we're remembering that Jesus is truth, yes, and is life, yes, but is also way. And it is sometimes easy to take the truth and the life of Jesus and then say a polite no thanks to the way of Jesus. And so in Lent, we are reminding ourselves that this is not just a religion we believe in. This is a person we have committed to follow, his words and his ways. Jesus saves us with his life, not only with his death, because in his life, he is teaching us a different way of being human. He's teaching us a different way of being so that we might show up to life, not from that soil of fear and control, but instead from a soil of uh, love and trust. And so this is good news. Jesus is teaching us how to be human in a whole new way, but it does not sound like good news to the kingdom of self. It does not sound like good news to the heavily guarded, fiercely protected territory of my own rule of my life. It comes as invitation and promise and good news, yes, but it also comes as confrontation, as a collision of rules, my rule versus God's rule, a clashing of kingdoms, a confrontation of two ways of being. And so we looked at this last week. That as Jesus teaches us how to live in spirit and truth, there's this conversation with Nicodemus that happens that we explored last week in which he says to Nicodemus, you must be born anew. If you want to see God's kingdom, if you want to see how to live through this new kingdom, something radically new has to happen in your life. And this happens as a spiritual transaction, yes, there's truth in that. There's something mysterious about that. But at a, at a much deeper and practical level, this is also happening in very ordinary ways where we change our hearts and minds on things we used to think, ways we used to be, postures of the heart we used to hold, values we used to live from. All of this is changing in us as we receive God's kingdom life. This is why Jesus said, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Those things are tied together. And so the first step of seeing the kingdom in our lives and also the ongoing step is repentance. It is a change of heart and mind. And so last week we looked at that image of the tree with the roots. And today what we'll do is zoom in on those two branches of politics and sexuality. We'll use them as case studies. We'll follow them down to the roots. And what the question is that we're asking is, how do I practically be born again through the move of God's Holy Spirit on these simple branches of my tree? Uh, so that I actually might show up in this world differently through the invitation of Jesus. Now, hold that image of the tree in one hand, and now uh, imagine another image that I'm going to give us, uh, and that is the image of nesting dolls. You all know what I'm talking about as I say that, the doll that has a doll, and it, this is really creepy, actually. I was going to bring some, but I thought we don't need one more reason to run out the door today. Um, and so, nesting dolls. Uh, as humans... We always fit one thing inside of a larger, more dominant thing. There is something bigger than everything else, which is our worldview. It is our ecosystem. It is the dominant values and loyalties that are functioning as an invisible sort of lens that I see everything else in my life through. It's how I make sense of the world. In other words, I never truly see anything. You never truly see anything. We see something through another thing. And the question is, what is the most dominant thing in my life? And what are the other things that are fitting inside of it? Here are three things. The kingdom, which is uh, the story. 
the capital S story that we've been looking at. And then there is another thing called our story. This might be the story of my culture or my country or my community. This is the, the tribe I find my belonging in, right? It might be the softball team or the fact that, you know, I love uh, Star Wars or it might be, uh, you know, any number of different things. It might be the nation that I'm a part of, but these are my people. This is our collective story. And then there is my story, the story of the self. And these three things all matter, and a healthy life needs a healthy connection to all three, but what we have to decide is which is the largest? Which is the one that's going to hold the other ones? Which is the middle thing? Which is the smallest thing? Let me give us some practical examples. If I hear the challenging words of Jesus around social values and the way I am to relate to others, and I immediately map that to a party a political party and their position on that, then I've just told on myself. What I've said is our story, meaning the culture and country story, has become bigger in my life than the kingdom story, and I'm reading the kingdom through my collective community story. Does that make sense? Or if I were to hear the words of Jesus calling me to radical hospitality and generosity, and I immediately go, ah, I can't do that because of my bank account. I have put my story as the dominant thing, and I'm reading the kingdom story through that. Does that make sense? So now, of course, we have to wrestle with all three of these. We have to make sense of all three of these. All these things matter, and they're going to, of course, involve discernment around real-world realities of my story and our story. But the idea here is we want to make sure, first and foremost, that we've ordered our world rightly, that we've got the biggest thing as the biggest thing. And so Jesus is expanding our maps if we will allow him to do so. And he's saying everything must be rethought. Everything about the our story and the my story must be rethought in light of this larger kingdom story, in light of receiving a king and a kingdom. And so we come to the woman at the well. It's a fascinating story. We could spend a lot of time on it. I'm barely going to touch the surface of it. Uh, but this story is fascinating in one way because we see each of these realms involved in the story of the woman at the well. Uh, there is the story breaking in as the, the woman's story is reconfigured uh, in light of the kingdom. And this entire village is caught up in Jesus' salvation work. And then there's our story stuff happening here where, you know, the woman can't believe Jesus is talking to her because Jews and Samaritans don't talk to each other. And the disciples are offended and, and so there's a lot of communal stuff and, and, and cultural stuff and even, dare we say, political stuff happening here. And then there's her story as she navigates her own hopes and longings alongside the broken portions of her own biography. And here is this woman, assumed to be a second-class citizen three times over. She is a woman, she is a Samaritan, she is divorced. Not only that, she's divorced five times. And Jesus sees her. And he meets her, and he comes to her, and the kingdom in the most gracious and tender and challenging ways subsumes her personal story and her communal story. It honors both, and it includes both, but it also transcends them and is giving her a larger world in which to understand those things through. It's birthing this newer, newer larger realm for her to make sense of what it means to be a human. Now... This brings us to politics. I find this part of the story really funny. Uh, actually, go back to the last one for me, Liam, thank you. The woman answered, Jesus, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. And the woman said, sir, I see that you are a prophet. (laughs) Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place where, what is she talking about, right? In light of what, what Jesus just said, this is hilarious to me because it's exactly what I would do. The minute Jesus gets close to her story, she pivots and brings up a cultural and religious hot topic. Do you see how we can use doctrinal truth or religious debate or cultural discussions as actually a stiff arm to keep Jesus from getting too close to what's really going on in my heart? And there is nowhere that we try that juke on Jesus more than in the the area of politics. We come to Jesus and he calls us to repentance, to a deep change of imagination and story and mindset and posture and lordship and citizenship. And we respond to him by reminding him how bad those other guys are out there, right? And Jesus is inviting us into a different way of seeing something far larger if we will allow him to take us there. I want to say that politics and governance can be vehicles of great good, and yet they also can be places where we refuse to bow our knee to another king. We have all seen the importance of good governance, good leadership, good stewardship of society, but also it's a place where we decide, are we really going to receive this kingdom or not? Jesus worked outside the system of politics. He had no political role. He had no formal role at all, and yet... In the midst of that, his life carried profound political implications. This is why he was a threat, right? Yes, his kingdom was of another world, and that does not mean it was a spiritual-only kingdom. If it was, he would have posed no threat to the powers that be, and they wouldn't have tried to kill all the two-year-olds and younger to get rid of his life before he could cause problems for them, right? He was a threat. And his kingdom had specific and salient values baked into it, and we don't get to make them up. The kingdom has its own values. And so politics becomes this political branch of our life where the clashing and confrontation of kingdoms, it becomes really real. We have to figure out what to do with this. And the temptation is to try to sidestep that collision by claiming Jesus as my spiritual only savior on top of an otherwise unchanged political life. In, if I do that, what I've done is say, Jesus as Savior, I will allow you to reach me, but Jesus as King, I will not allow you to teach me in any meaningful way. We minimize Jesus' social teaching so that we can create this spiritual-only sort of Jesus. But the problem is it looks nothing like the Christ of Scripture. And so when I talk about Jesus, I can't help but talk about the political and social implications of his life because if I don't talk about them, I'm not really talking about Jesus. I'm talking about some figment of our imaginations. So we have to wrestle then with the fact that Jesus' life and words have these implications that impact our politics and our neighboring and our ordering of society. And even so, we must say that Jesus and his politics do not map to our partisan politics of today, and they do not map to our maps at all, right? Jesus was not living in our world with our atlases, with our borders, with our governments. He wasn't living in that world. He's calling us to something far larger than that. And if I find myself dogmatically all blue or dogmatically all red, then may I gently suggest that we possibly have our nesting dolls out of order 
and that I'm trying to see Jesus through this other thing that I've already made an allegiance to, and I'm going to fit Jesus inside of that some way. Repentance is called for, for this kingdom life. And we can faithfully follow Jesus and lean primarily conservative, and we can faithfully follow Jesus and lean primarily progressive, and many in our church do so. That's one of the reasons why I love our community, because we get the clashing of all of that, and we look to Christ to hold us together in the midst of that. But let me say that I think we're going to find it very difficult to follow Jesus and remain a perfectly loyal Republican or a perfectly loyal Democrat. In fact, we're going to find it hard, and this may sting a bit, to follow Jesus and be a perfectly loyal American. Because Jesus is calling us to a broader citizenship, a citizenship that includes every tribe and nation and tongue. It's bigger. It's a bigger world. And therefore, I have to think outside of those things. Now, I want to say with that that our country has great gifts, and I'm thankful for it. And I recognize as we talk about our country, it holds different places in each of our stories I mean, some of us have served in the military. Some of us have come from other countries. This means a different thing to each and every one of us, and I want to be sensitive to that, and I want to say we can be thankful for our country. But when Jesus' followers started confessing Jesus is Lord, and they started saying that, Jesus is Lord, that was a direct contrast to the nation-state they lived in in which the announcement of the day was Caesar is Lord, right? This is a political statement that we now belong to a new kingdom, a new country, so to speak. And at some point, all of our smaller identities, as important as they are, will come into conflict with the larger Jesus, and we must decide which is Lord yeah. at that point. And so, of course, we're going to still have to wrestle with these things. We're still going to have to figure out how to make sense of our politics. We, of course, will still disagree with one another as we do so. But we want to be people who are pushing back on divisiveness and dehumanization and the dichotomies of I must be either all this or all that and all of that is bad and all of this is good. What we're gonna find is that Jesus carries deep convictions that explode all those categories. And so we should expect that he is confounding my political views regularly. He's stretching me beyond party alliances to have fidelity in following King Jesus. We have to reject those dichotomies because that cultural story is smaller than the kingdom story. Now, let's look at this for a minute. And I wish we could spend a lot more time on this. But if we approach Jesus liberal, uh, last one, actually, Liam, thanks. If we approach Jesus liberal in instinct, then I would suggest we might want to expect that Jesus the Alpha is going to be stretching us toward the wisdom of tradition, which is inherently conservative. There are some things that stand the test of time for a reason. There are some things that generation after generation say, this is what wisdom looks like, and so we want to make room for them. But if you consider yourself conservative, expect Jesus the Omega to stretch you toward transformation, which is inherently progressive. He's going to call you into the mystery and presence of those outside your tribe in ways you never would have imagined. Just ask the disciples who can't understand why Jesus is talking to that woman over there, right? And so we're getting stretched. And I wish we could dig into this more, but for me... I wonder if the question is not, should we be conservative or progressive, but rather if the question is more along the lines of, what do we need to conserve in light of who Jesus is? And what do we need to move forward to in light of who Jesus is? And how does that reshape 
our political leanings. I'll end with this on this part. Lent reminds us that we have been baptized into a different citizenship. I'm so thankful for our country. I'm mindful that this country means different things to each and every one of us in light of our stories. I honor that, and I'm thankful for our country uh, and the many great gifts that it provides, and it is not where our ultimate allegiance lies. We are given a different pledge of allegiance that is, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what it means to be baptized into the kingdom of God. And so if we seek to be born again on the branch of this tree, then I want to encourage us to consider starting with these habits and routines that shape our lives. I don't think it's possible for us to consume partisan social media or news all day long and still see things Jesus' way. Because we're going to start seeing through that to Jesus, not the other way around. So here's some questions. How are my daily liturgies and habits creating a lens I see the world through? How is that lens changing what I am loyal to? How are my loyalties determining who and how I love? We consider that. Now, part three. I'm talking a little longer today. Hang in there with me. This one's a shift, but let's try out this branch called sexuality. How does the kingdom and the self play out on that branch? The battle between myself and the kingdom. Uh, sexuality lies at the center of life. There is this great book, by the way, that I'm leaning on for this part called A Holy Longing by Ronald Rollheiser. Wonderful book. And he has, uh, he's going to do some heavy lifting for us here. Um, Rawlheiser defines that, this idea of Christian sexuality through these words that will come up on the screen here and, and says that it's important that we understand and define sexuality broadly so that we can see how it sits at the center of our life. He says, we are fired into life with a great and powerful fire, a madness and longing that can broadly be called sexuality. It is the only fire powerful enough to create life like God does, and when we stand back from what we have created, we, like God, make something good and become others-oriented. Mature sexuality then has the capacity to break the prisons and casings of our selfishness. A healthy sexuality is the single most powerful vehicle there is to lead us to selflessness and joy, just as unhealthy sexuality helps constellate selfishness and unhappiness as does nothing else. We'll be happy in this life depending on whether or not we have a healthy sexuality. Those are strong words, but I think they're befitting for such a strong fire. Sexuality is a great gift, and we need spirituality to tend such a great fire well. And so life in this bigger kingdom of God is giving us the tools we need to channel the fire, to tend the fire, in a healthy way, lest the very thing that was intended to be life-giving ends up becoming this thing that burns us, that harms ourselves and others. And so if it seems like that is making too much of sexuality, I think one reason is because we tend to define sexuality really narrowly. What I'm talking about is a lot broader than sexual action or sexual attraction. I'm talking about something that includes that, includes much more than that, and therefore is appropriate for those who are single, those who are in a relationship. This is a much broader, expansive category. And so in this broad understanding of sexuality, one can go their entire life without having sex, Jesus did, 
and remain, a, a, remain uh, connected to a healthy, whole, life-giving sexuality that blooms unto selfless love and co-creation with God. And one can have sex all the time. We see many who do. And they are still caged in this life-diminishing, unhealthy sexuality that blooms to loneliness and self-obsession. And so, certainly, as we talk about this, this includes the typical categories when they think of as sexuality, but it also includes these wider fires, things around community and creativity and love and perhaps most of all, consummation. We long for a wholeness, this deep sense of shalom that is baked in to us. It harkens all the way back to the first garden. We want to co-create with God. We want to tend and name. We want to know that it is not good to be alone. And we want to be a part of an eternal community where we can be naked and unashamed. And so if we take this big story seriously, the, what's happening is like this is the stubborn seeds of Eden. They're still in us. They're calling us toward home. If we trace those seeds down to their roots, we find in them the big questions at the bottom of that piece of paper around longing and belonging and significance and safety. The word sex comes from the Latin word, uh, to, and, and what it means is to be cut off or severed. And so if I were to take a branch of the tree and cut it off, I would have sexed that branch. And it's a fascinating image uh, because it is how we find ourselves. Here's Rawlheiser again, uh, if you go to the next one. He says, this branch, could it think and feel, would wake up on the ground, severed, cut off, and disconnected, a lonely little piece of wood which was once part of a great living being. It would know in its every cell that if it wants to continue living, and especially if it wants to produce flowers and bear fruit, it must somehow reconnect itself to the tree. This is precisely how we wake up in the world. We feel ourselves painfully sexed, sensing we are incomplete, unwhole, lonely, and cut off. And now we've moved into deep waters because we are still and always will have a sense that we have been cut off from the tree of life that we were born into. And we long to overcome that incompleteness and it drives us mad, right, this desire for some sort of deep union and communion that will be eternal, that I will never be cut off from. And so as Christians, the kingdom of God is calling us to be born anew in how we steward that sort of a longing. So that longing is deep within us, and invariably so great a fire is going to have hosts of counterfeits and leeches attached to it, lesser ways of expressing itself to counterfeit it. And so for the Christian, sexuality is this deeply sacred fire that must be tended with tremendous intentionality and wisdom. It is an expression of covenant and consummation and a form of both commitment and communication. Sex not only is to do something, it is to say something. It is to make a great promise. It is to tell the words I long for someone to say to me and that another longs to hear. And which is why those words can either be the deepest of deep truths or the most devastating and destructive of half-truths, these lies, right? Because sex, therefore, is never casual. It is saying something covenantal 
And if it is spoken outside of covenantal vow, then it is by definition speaking something. It's making a promise it cannot back up, which is why we feel it ripping us when it's unhealthy. And so this is a good and extremely powerful and therefore volatile energy. It is a sacred and if we allow it to be sanctifying gift. It's given by God for us to steward, to struggle with. And in that struggle, we meet God alongside the wells of our life, and we talk to him about the times we both burn with this longing and the times we have been burned by this longing. And in that sense, sexuality is far deeper than a love scene in a movie. It is a place to be born again. It's talking about the deepest of deep things in us, and what are we going to do with those things? Because in the end, we hunger to consummate everything, and yet very little things in this life are ever consummated. Most things are left undone. And what do we do with the residual longing and thirst beneath that? What do we do with the parched places where we're pulling up water from a well and yet find ourselves still thirsty? Here's Rawlheiser again, and we'll end with this. He gives us questions if we're looking to practically be born anew on this branch of our tree. He says, our sexual hungers are simply too wide and all-encompassing to ever be fulfilled. And they are of such a complex nature that sometimes having sex does little to fulfill them. What are we to do with this? How are we to live with that frustration so as to not unconsciously take it out on life and on our loved ones? How do we live in an incomplete world without demanding that our lives, spouses, friends, homes, vocations give us something they ultimately cannot give, namely the final symphony of full consummation? How might we find Jesus slipping in alongside us as we navigate a thirst that strong? So we're going to close. Uh, I want to remind us that we did heavy lifting today around these two particular branches, but my hope is actually to illustrate how you might take this and add your own branches or sit with some of the other branches we didn't talk about and say, Jesus, how are you inviting me to be born anew here? And what are the root systems that are attached to some of these areas of my life where I am showing up still from the soil of fear and control, the lesser way of the self? Where am I being transplanted from selfdom to kingdom? I encourage you to pick one place this week. Sit with it. Converse with Jesus about it. See how he's inviting you into something deeper. Let's pray. Lord Christ, And the reason these are topics that feel weighty is because they really matter. And we imperfectly steward them. And we see their capacity for good, whether politics or sexuality, and we've experienced their capacity for harm. And so we get fired up about these things. But would you help us to place them inside the largest container of all, which is your expansive kingdom. That we might steward them in life-giving ways that point to your good story breaking in around us, to your rule and reign that is the most foundational truth of all. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.